Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 277 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. We are doing another episode, and by the way, we have one more coming this week, at least one more coming this week, because it is UNC week, so we're going to have to do more shows for you, even if the Blue Devils are not up to snuff as they normally would be. We have a great interview for you coming up, but before we get to it, I am your host, Sam Klein. I am coming to you as I usually do from Boston. I am joined, as always, by my partners in crime. Jason Evans is in Atlanta. Jason, good afternoon. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing very well. Yeah, you're right. This is a really excellent interview coming up. Folks are going to enjoy it. Definitely. And Donald Wine is also here. He is at home in Washington, D.C. What's up, Donald? Uh, not too much. I'm just, I just I know the people out there can't see this, but Jason is shining today. He is he is shining. It's, it's actually the sun creeping in behind him, but he's still shining just like our interview it's was. The, it's the golden hour on, on Jason Evans's face in his living room. So uh, crushing it. Donald, by the way, we need to very, very quickly touch on the the rumor that Donald was, was purporting on Twitter the other day about Waffle House opening in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yes. So no, no, wanna... it's not. Yeah, yeah. So the, it's, not a, it's not a rumor that it, they're opening. It's a petition to get Waffle House to come to D.C. And I'm like, y'all should have been had this. But I will tell you this, this is a quick, quick story. Uh, we were going to have one here in Washington, D.C. I don't know, Sam, if you know this. It was going to be right next to Ben's Chili Bowl and where Ben's next door is right now, that's that building three stories tall. It was going to be the largest waffle house in the country. And it was going to be brought to us by then Washington Redskin, now Washington football team player, Fred Smoot. Now it did not come to fruition because the my, uh, the Minnesota Vikings boat scandal happened. And because Fred Smoot was at the center of that, the waffle house got taken away. and We have not had waffle wait, house. Wait, what? Come on. The Waffle House, the Waffle House Ben's Chili Bowl rivalry would have been amazing. It would have like, been epic. We really missed out. Yeah, but I, I guarantee you this. If Waffle House opens in the District of Columbia, whatever location that is, will be the most successful one in the country, hands down. And don't tell me anything about everyone's like, oh, but what about Atlanta? Atlanta has 11 billion of them. We will have one. Atlanta, yes, all of them are slamming. They're all good. They all good. But if yep. DC, if nine million, a metro area of nine million people has one Waffle House game set match. Uh, look, I, I am I am in Atlanta, and and all over the country, I hear from these people who are like, Waffle House is good. Krispy uh, Kreme is coming. Chick Fil A is coming. I'm like, yeah, we've had these things since I was fucking born. You know? <laughs> yeah, but no, it's not about like it's it's not about the novelty of Waffle House. These are people who know what Waffle House is. And it's like just. Print money, bring it here. It's not a big like they're getting rid of Dave Thomas Circle. Put Waffle House there. It's yeah, I great. just but but my point is we already have all the good food in Atlanta. I already that's have fine. This. that's fine. <laughs> we just don't. And and, and they use the thing is I think way back in the day they used to and they got rid of them. They were used to be around Peachy County and they got rid of them for some in, inexplicable reason. And I'm just saying bring it back. I'm not asking you to give me something new. Just bring what we just bring what we want. Just get it here. I'm we so have Nando's glad. that you don't. So that, I mean, we do have something that you don't. I'm so glad I brought this up. Thank you very much for entertaining <laughs> me. Guys, we are going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we are going to bring you an interview that we recently did with uh, Brendan Marks from The Athletic, who covers Duke and North Carolina and, and the ACC. We'll get into exactly all the work that he's doing and also his thoughts on Duke and the ACC and the upcoming game right after this. 
All right. We are joined now by Brendan Marks, who is a staff writer at The Athletic. He covers Duke. He covers other ACC teams. Brendan, uh, thank you for joining us on the DBR podcast. Welcome. And can you start us by explaining exactly what you're covering at The Athletic and, and kind of how you got to this point, just so we know sort of sort of where your your kind of basketball bona fides are coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, staff writer is probably the best way to put it because um, initially I was uh, hired by The Athletic to be the Duke and North Carolina basketball beat writer. And then that sort of morphed into also covering North Carolina football and occasionally covering NC State basketball and occasionally just covering the ACC at large. So uh, that job has sort of continued to morph. But no, I, I've been at The Athletic now for just over a year, year and a couple of months. Um, last season was my first full, for the most part, full season on the beat. I started uh, right around Thanksgiving time last year. And before that, I worked at Sports Illustrated for a little bit, just as a sort of breaking news writer. And then thereafter, I worked at the Charlotte Observer, um, covered primarily the Panthers, uh, a little bit of Hornets coverage, a little bit of NASCAR coverage, a little bit of ACC um, but, but primarily Panthers when I was in Charlotte. So yeah. And, and then before that, obviously I, uh, went to college at North Carolina, which I know has been held against me by many a Duke fan, but, uh, that's, oh, wait, we of... got to stop. We got to stop. <laughs> Forget it. You're done, man. We, we and we thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's the sort of where I first, uh, really started to, I think, love the ACC. I, I grew up as more of an NBA fan actually than, than as a college fan. Um, but being in North Carolina and I went there for the journalism school, uh, you, you can't help, but fall in love with the ACC. So that's sort of been my path to get to this point, but, um, I'm hoping we can have a few fewer stops. I would like to be here for a little while. <laughs> well, we, uh, we appreciate so far the, the coverage that you've provided. I think all of us are fans of The Athletic and, and fans of your work, so appreciate all of that. Given that you are not a Duke guy and, in fact, a UNC guy sort of by, by lifestyle and, and, and background, looking at the Duke team this year more dispassionately than I think the three of us are capable of, what do you think is like the, the thing that is most missing from this Duke team. And, and I presume you've seen a lot of Duke basketball teams of the past. So what do you think is missing from this team that previous teams have had? Yeah. You know, I, I think that there are so many different things and um, myself and, and Dana O'Neill, who's, you know, one of our senior writers at the athletics, she and I put together sort of a, a longer deep dive this week into the various problems that, that is plaguing this Duke team. Um, but I think the number one thing to me is inconsistency. Like, in the past, it doesn't matter who has been there. It doesn't matter what the revolving door of freshman has been in the last decade. It doesn't matter um, if it's a younger team, if it's an older team, if, if, the, if the strength is in the front court, in the back court, on the wing. It, none of that matters because there's always some semblance of consistency. And I think that, and I'm, I'm sure for you guys as fans, that's the most frustrating part about this year because you truly never know what you're going to get on a game to game basis. And I think, you know, this week sort of exemplifies that you look at the Miami game coming off of Clemson coming off of Georgia tech. Um, I don't think anyone would have anticipated that that game going the way that it did. So the inconsistency to me is the biggest hurdle because it's so hard to talk about any of the individual facets of this roster. You know, if you want to talk about, um, you know, the inconsistent shooting, if you want to talk about the turnovers, if you want to talk about um, Jalen Johnson, you know, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, if you want to talk about the lack of a, a dependable point guard, I think all of that ties under this larger umbrella of consistency and, and really inconsistency. Would you, I, I know that in 
the write-up that you did with Dana O'Neill, you talked a little bit about how it feels a little bit like the one and done setup at Duke is maybe coming back to 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 bite them at this moment. Do you think that this is an, an inflection point for Duke? Do you think that that's going to that there's something about the recruiting and development philosophy that has to change based on this year? I, I don't know if it's strictly based on this year. I think it's, it's more so looking at the larger college basketball universe, you know, really since 2015, because anytime you mention one and done, you're talking about Duke, you, you have to include 2015. And, and obviously what Ja and Tyus and Justice were able to accomplish. I mean, that that's a huge sort of pocket mark as for, yes, let's continue doing one and done. Let's continue trying to bring in these guys. Um, and, and, you know, if not for a knee injury and a busted shoe two years ago, I think there's a very good chance that we're talking about two titles in a, what is it, four-year span? So um, I think the biggest difference in what you're seeing now, and I think some of it's subconscious, but some of it is certainly intentional. You look at guys last year like a Matthew Hurt. You look at guys this year like a Jeremy Roach, a DJ Stewart. Um, those are guys that are... 15 offer guys, top 15, top 20, everyone in the country wants those guys. But, but there's a difference between them and someone like a Jalen who you know is gone, where there is, there is no doubt that this person is going to be in Durham for six months. I think that you're seeing Duke prefer to have fewer of those guys and more of those guys who are just a step below, still incredibly talented, still five-star level, still, still you know championship caliber players, but more so down the line, you know? It's, it is, I think uh, Jay Billis in our story put it, you know, fantastically. And I know that sometimes he gets some vitriol from Duke fans, but I thought Jay put it really well. And he said, you're, you're straddling a fine line between talent and culture. And, and by culture, you're talking about sustained success and experience and, um, you know, really game preparedness, just knowing that you can't take games off as I think we saw on Monday night. So to me, I think Duke is walking that line much more attentively now and will continue to do so in the future. And I think that part of that is a result of some of the struggles you're seeing this season. I think part of that is a result of the potential that the NBA is going to change their eligibility requirements in, you know, the next year, two years, three years. Um, But overall, the teams that are winning in college basketball are the ones that have a combination of youth and experience. Duke has to some way or another, find a way to build back up that depth of experience. You were at all the Duke games last year in the locker room and in the press conferences with coach K and you've been on all the zooms within this year. Unfortunately, we can't be there in person. What, if any difference can you detect from last year to this year where last year's team, you know, it, it, it kind of got rolling at the end of the year and things were, things were going well when the season got canceled this year, it feels like it got off to a rough start and it never quite recovered. Can you tell that, Coach K is treating this team differently or acting differently than he did last year. You can, and you can, you can pick it up through his comments. You know, last year, his thing was, this is an old fashioned team. This is a team that's going to take longer to, to come together. You haven't heard that this year because he just focuses on the youth. Now, you know, this is a young team. They're so young. We're so young that we can play perfectly and still lose. Um, I think that has really been the constant theme, you know, even dating back to December, really. Um, I will say, I think in terms of his demeanor, I think that he is a little bit more forgiving actually with this group because he acknowledges their youth and the difficulties that come with that. I mean, he has been as positive after losses this year as I think maybe you've seen in a couple of years from him. He is constantly trying to pick these guys up. He's constantly trying to take the blame on himself and deflect it away from the players. And 
I think you saw a little bit less of that last year. I think there was a little more accountability for those guys, um, both in terms of the freshmen who were immediately available. And also you had guys that, that he needed who were upperclassmen to play. You know, if Trey Jones had a bad game, he could hold Trey responsible. If uh, Jack or Javin had a bad game, he could hold them responsible. I, I think the confidence of this younger group and, and the fact that they haven't really seen that sustained success is a reason why you see him, you know, I, I don't want to call it kid gloves, um, but certainly nurturing much more than you would have seen a season ago. We've noted a couple times on the show that among the things that are different this year is that he hasn't explicitly anointed anybody as a captain for this team. Do you read into that more deeply than he just doesn't feel like he needs, like w- what does that mean? Yeah, I, I think actually I go back to the preseason and this question got asked a lot, you know, in the in the lead up zooms. Uh, yeah, Jason, I think you might have even done a couple of those. And I remember at one point, I, I don't remember if it was Coach Carowell or Coach James, but someone said, you know, Wendell is being very captain like. And the follow up question was sort of like, well, is he a captain? And he's like, well, I, I don't think we're there quite yet. Um, I think that's really telling. And I've sort of been tracking that and watching that. And yeah, I, I think you do sort of look at it like the, the best two players on this team, Jalen and Matthew, are not, I don't, I wouldn't say, you know, very outward or natural leaders. Um, you know, neither of them is a particularly exuberant, outgoing personality. Not to say they're not nice guys or good guys, but th- they're just not the rah, rah, get you together types. Um is Wendell more that guy? Maybe, but when you're scoring five points or fewer in half your games, um, it's it's sort of hard to have that same impact in the locker room. So, you know, is is Jordan Goldwire dependable? Is he older? Does he have that experience? Yes, but again, he's he's not a guy who's outward, who's vocal, and and I don't think that they have anyone on the roster right now who who has that combination of personality and actual impact on performance that you could call them a true captain. And, and yeah, I, I do think that at some points it's pretty obvious that, that the lack of that is hurting Duke. Brendan, just kind of like your, your job role has kind of evolved from Duke uh, to more of the ACC. We are going to expand to a bit of the ACC now. And, and we've talked about how this year has just been kind of erratic for everybody. It's just been a mess, uh, but there still have been a lot of surprises. So the first one question would be like, which ACC teams do you are surprising you the most, either in a good way or a bad way? Yeah, I think in a good way, um, the pretty easy one for me is Virginia Tech. Um, I did not expect this from the Hokies. Um, I I got to see Virginia Tech play in person, or or got to. I say that like it's a privilege. Last year, it certainly was not. Um, I had the opportunity to watch Virginia Tech play the sport of basketball, or at least whatever that version looked like for them last year. And to, to say that you expected this coming would be a lie. I mean, I don't even think Mike Young could have envisioned his team would be playing this well. But Virginia Tech plays a really modern style of offense. And, you know, they bang threes. They have little guys that skirt around the perimeter. They have tough, it's tough to defend Virginia Tech. And then they've got a guy in Keve Aluma who's playing out of his mind right now. You know, I think in my book, he's, he's probably in the conversation of the three or four guys for ACC player of the year right now. Um, Virginia Tech looks like a guaranteed tournament team. They're a legit top 25 team. From last year, where this team was getting blown out by the worst North Carolina team in, in the last 20 years uh, in the ACC tournament, I mean, that's a night and day difference. And, and then in terms of teams that I think have negatively surprised a little bit, um, you know, people want to point to Duke, but I, I look at NC State. Um, you know, I understand that they just lost Evan Daniels. I understand that Thunderbird has missed some time. Manny Bates has been in and out of the lineup. Um, 
but I talked to coach Keats over the summer and he told me how excited he was for the season, how I finally have my guys. I have my full roster and as good as Markel Johnson was coach Keats didn't recruit him and he had to put up with bad Markel sometimes. I'm really surprised even before Devin went down with his ACL injury that NC state wasn't more consistent than they were on both ends of the floor. Um, I think that this was sort of a breakout potential year for NC state. And the fact that things have gone so sideways um, is really not a great sign. I don't know what you sort of make of the situation in Raleigh. Well, I will say on this podcast, we did predict at least so far that Virginia tech would be one of the surprises this year. So I'm glad that, we're on the same page and that somehow we, we were able to pull that out of thin air, but you did mention tournament teams. And I want to know like for you at this point, obviously down the road, things can change, but at this point, which teams do you think could likely be tournament teams right now? And who are the other ones that are creeping on that doorstep? I, th- I think right now there's only three that you feel pretty comfortable with and that's Virginia, Florida state and Virginia tech. I think those three have clearly sort of separated themselves as the best three teams in the conference. Um, I would say that probably it's Virginia or Florida state for, for the honor of best team right now. But um, as we have seen in the past couple of days, anything is possible. So I would say that those three are the only locks right now, but I do think that the ACC has a bunch of teams in that middle pack that are going to sort of, you know, cannibalize each other. You know, they are going to either rack up wins or, or pile up losses against one another. And the teams that would be in that group would be, a Louisville, a Clemson, a Georgia Tech, and and I would say North Carolina too. I don't really count Syracuse in that group. I don't think that their defense is anywhere near good enough to be a tournament team. Um, But uh, it's sort of hard when you look at a team like North Carolina and how badly they played on Tuesday night against Clemson. I mean, just completely embarrassed, um, you know, shut out for, you know, five-minute bouts in both halves. Um, But all of those teams are flawed in some way or another. You know, Georgia Tech has – that trio of Alvarado and DeVoe and Wright, you know, they don't get that whole trio every single game. DeVoe has been sort of missing at points this season. Wright has had games where he hasn't been uh, absolutely on fire at Louisville. If, if the backcourt struggles, if Carly Jones and David Johnson are putting up crazy numbers, the Cardinals really struggle. So I, I look at those three, Virginia, Virginia tech and Louisville or, and uh, Florida state, excuse me, as the only guarantees right now. But I do think there's the potential that the ACC could get as many as six teams. If I had to guess right now, I would say that probably Georgia tech does get in. I think Louisville does get in. And I think North Carolina does get in. And looking at the players, you know, there's been quite a few standout performers throughout the season so far Who's your, who's the people that, who are the guys that you're thinking? Yes. These guys are all ACC right now. Yeah, we actually, uh, my boss has just asked me to put together this list. So I'm happy to share. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think the, the runaway favorite right now for ACC player of the year for me is Justin Champagne. Um, even for a pit team that is good, not great. He, his numbers, you can't ignore them. What he is doing as a six, six power forward in the ACC, it's truly remarkable. I mean, the numbers he's putting up, great. And I understand there's some criticism of him in terms of he has the ultimate green light. There's, there's really no shot that he isn't allowed to take. Um, but at the same point, you have to make him, and he is right now. So I, I think the reason why I give him so much value, too, is I think about it in terms of where would this team be without this player? And without Justin Champagny, I think we're talking about Pitt in the same breath as a Boston College or a Notre Dame. I know they have Xavier Johnson and Tony, but um, – 
This would be a really bad basketball team without Justin Champagny. And then the other four guys that I put in that list, you know, one of them was Matthew Hurt. Um, the jump that he's made has been astounding. I think that he is one of the best pure scorers in the league. Um, his defense isn't great, but, you know, when he's playing with Jalen Johnson, Jalen can sort of erase some of those vulnerabilities. Um, in the backcourt, I go with Jose Alvarado and Carly Jones. Carly is one of the leading scorers in the league. Jose has been, you know, out of his mind in certain games. Uh, whenever Georgia Tech has played at its best, it's because of him. It's because he is so shifty, so hard to stay in front of defensively. Um, and, you know, occasionally he's good for a couple of defensive steals and things like that. The fifth spot is hard. Because I think you could go with a number of guys. You know, if you made an argument for Keve Aluma, I'd hear you. If you made an argument for Sam Hauser, I'd hear you. Um, but I actually go with Jay Huff at Virginia. I think if we're talking about Virginia as the best team in the ACC right now, you have to go with who I think is their best player right now. And I thought that that was going to be Hauser before the year started. And um, Jay Huff has completely surprised me. You know, I did not see him becoming in any way a volume three-point shooter. Not that the mechanics were bad, but I just didn't see Tony Bennett really allowing him to have that role. And he's thrived in it. He's still blocking shots. His, his post game has developed even more. Um, you know, I think right now he, he's another one of those guys that you would count in the ACC player of the year conversation. So that's my five some for now. But again, there's so many good other players, you know, Sam Hauser's in there. Um, like I mentioned, you could even put David Johnson from Louisville. Um, I, I think that there's an argument to be made for, you know, a Moses Wright, maybe even Armando Baycott at UNC. But again, there's, there's too much inconsistency outside of those five for me to feel good about anyone else. So real quick, I mean, you just listed off a bunch of players and, and thank you for that list because, you know, I think we're almost kind of breaking news in that regard with, with where you're, where you're thinking so far, but I, I'm just curious in the, in the grand scheme of this pandemic, you know, we're 11 months into this pandemic where a lot of stuff has had to change. How has that altered your approach to even understanding the ACC or even just being able to, you know, you're probably able to watch more games because you don't have to attend them, but there's a difference between seeing a guy in person and seeing them on TV. How has that affected your approach to things. Yeah, it, it definitely has. I mean, number one, like you mentioned, you, you can't see as many of these guys in person. So you have to find other ways to learn about their games. And, um, you know, as someone based out of Durham, North Carolina, who covers UNC and Duke, I, I shouldn't really have any vested interest in Georgia Tech or Miami or, or any of these schools that are so far flung. But what it's forced you to do is really harp down more on rewatching games and studying tape and really looking at the advanced statistics to try and understand how these teams operate, to understand, um, obviously, we are not in the coaches' meetings. We don't know what the game plans are. We don't know, you know, who had the specific scout and the vulnerabilities they're trying to take advantage of on a game-to-game -game basis. But if you look at the ways, and one of my favorite things to do is, is using synergy, um, to try and find what are the ways that guys are most efficient. And then trying to match up the statistics with what I'm watching both live. And then when I go back and I watch the games again. So for example, I, you know, at UNC, um, I hear from an NBA scout, for example, that Dayron Sharp uh, for as, you know, physically gifted as he is, has bad footwork. He doesn't have an array of post moves. Um, he's a great passer, but once he actually gets the ball on the blocks, he, he doesn't necessarily know what to do or have any counters. And then you go and you look at the synergy stats and you see, wow, Dayron Sharp's offensive output is horrible on every shot attempt except for offensive putbacks. And then you go and you watch the game and you go, oh my God, all of that checks out. So it really, it's forced you to double and triple check what you think you know. But at the same time, um, crazy as it is, I think that 
thorough process and how deliberate you have to be has made me a smarter basketball fan and writer this season, um, even maybe more so than, than in years previous. And this has been great content. We appreciate it so much. Um, I want to turn now to the Duke UNC game specifically, um, because that's the reason we're all, you know, we're all excited and ready for this weekend. And, and let me start with this. We've obviously been following Duke extensively all year. You follow both the teams and, and have an affinity for the, for the Tar Heels. Uh, what's your assessment of the Carolina season thus far? I think somewhat like Duke, it has not been the season that folks were expecting. It hasn't been, but uh, I think the main difference in the two, at least in terms of expectations, was you know UNC is literally coming off the worst season of Roy Williams's career. I mean, um, watching UNC games last year was painful. I mean, the basketball was so bad; it was so inefficient. Um, I have seen Cole Anthony throw up more one-footed horrible shots than I could ever hope to see at the YMCA on a Saturday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So coming from that point, the expectations were far lower for UNC. Whereas Duke was ranked ninth in the nation preseason and predicted to be either tops or, or second in the ACC this year, which clearly hasn't come to fruition. So in that respect, I think UNC season has actually probably, and not just from a statistical perspective, obviously UNC is, one more games is higher seed is higher ranked in the ACC right now. Um, but UNC, I think has outperformed expectations a little bit where I would say that Duke has obviously underperformed them. Um, but in terms of this UNC team, it, it is, it is just as young as Duke. I mean, six new freshmen at each um, none of them are, are true, like one and done guys that you're really confident about. You know, Duke has the best freshman of the bunch in Jalen Johnson, but outside of that, you've got a lot of guys that you see, wow. I mean, he's going to be really good as a junior, but what is he right now? So, um, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how these two teams, which are, you know, they're meeting unranked for the first time, you know, well before I was born, um, it'll be really interesting to see how youth matches youth and whether we get, a really good game or what I would expect to see a turnover filled brick fest. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's something to look forward to. Um, hey, I want to talk about the Carolina returnees because, uh, you know, in Garrison Brooks, um, Armando Baycott, they, they got, a, they have a couple guys who were expected to be really, really solid player. I mean, a lot of people had Brooks as the preseason ACC player of the year or in the running for it at least. And, and most people expected Baycott, you know, th- this would be his final year in school that he, he will move on to the NBA. What, what have we seen from, from those guys? We'll get to the freshmen in a minute, but start with the guys that maybe our fans are a little more familiar with, um, the returnees for Carolina. What have they done so far? Um, not, not as much as they were expected to do. <laughs> Let me start by saying that. So, so Garrison Brooks, yeah, you, you brought it up. Preseason ACC Player of the Year has had nowhere near the season, senior season that I think UNC fans would have hoped for from him. Um, his scoring has dropped. His rebounding has dropped. Um, his efficiency has dropped. His usage has dropped. And that last one is really the biggest thing that I would point to for Duke fans and and fans of the ACC in general, who don't know a lot about UNC specifically Garrison Brooks was a fine player last year. He had some great games, some great performances. There were games when he almost single-handedly kept UNC in the contest. I would say not unlike what Matthew hurt has had to do this season. Um, But at the same time, the only reason he was able to produce those numbers was because there was literally no one else on the roster who could score. And so his usage rate, especially in the second half of the season, just absolutely skyrocketed. I mean, this guy was getting the ball in the paint every single time down the court. And and it would be great if UNC could do that now. But 
when you talk about having Armando Baycott and some of the other freshmen they've brought in, his usage was never going to be the same that it was last year. And, and as a result of that, he hasn't really been able to get into an offensive rhythm at all. So I think UNC fans have actually been really disappointed by Garrison Brooks this year. Um, he still has the potential to have those games and he's had a couple of strong ones of late, but at the same point, not, not nearly the dominant 25 and 12 guy that I think was expected. Um, Armando Baycott, I would, on, on the other hand, I would say he's probably been UNC's most consistent player this season. Um, and of course I say that with him having come off of a one shot attempt game against Clemson, where he was absolutely embarrassingly bad. That's the ACC this year, but Armando Baycott in the off season, he trimmed down his body. He worked on his post moves. He worked on his footwork. And the most important thing in all of that is that he worked. He actually put in work, which was something that last year um, for a guy who was sort of hailed as immature as a freshman was really impressive to me. I didn't expect him to be as diligent in his effort as he was. And you've seen the fruits of that labor. He's in better shape when he's on the court. He's got better second bounce. He is UNC's best post scorer right now. He has the best array of post moves. He has the best footwork and he has the best move, the best counters. So um, he's really a guy that I think is going to play a pivotal role in Saturday's game. I, I think that if he is able to get going, I don't know that Duke has anyone on the roster that can really compete with him when he's playing at the top of his game. Okay. So let's get to the freshmen now um, because there are several guys that Carolina has who, you know, one and done kind of conversation sort of guys, you know, top 20 recruits um, and give me, you know, how's their season gone so far? Yeah. So I think the best of the bunch coming in was Dayron Sharp. Um, he's in a North Carolina native, uh, 6'10", 285, just an absolute Hulk of, a, of an 18 year old. Um, he is physically ready to be in the NBA now. Skills wise, he is nothing close to being ready to be in the NBA right now. Um, and, and playing behind Brooks and Baycott, he hasn't really gotten to show his full arsenal of what he's capable, I would say, on a consistent basis. Um, I, the one thing that I will say about Dayron is he is, as Roy Williams has said time and time again, arguably the best rebounder that Coach Williams has ever coached, ever, which, which is really saying That's something. That's really saying something, yeah. It's really saying something. I mean, he, he has talked about this kid and said he is a better natural rebounder than like a Hansbro. Um, the ball just seems to find his hands. So that, that shows up. I mean, especially in the offensive glass, that's one of the reasons why UNC is here. I had it pulled up right now. UNC right now is second nationally in offensive rebounding percentage. And Dayron Sharp is a huge reason why. Um, outside of Dayron, though, uh, Walker Kessler, another five-star big man, uh, struggled has struggled with playing time this year, a large part because he went through the COVID-19 protocols um, back earlier in the season and missed a couple of weeks you know, conditioning goes away so quickly for these guys, especially a seven footer um, missed out on, on game plans and learning and being in film sessions. And that has sort of hurt him from a developmental standpoint, but um, he's probably one of the best effort guys UNC had for someone who is seven feet tall. I, I know if that were me, I would sure as hell not be diving on the floor as much as that dude is. Um, and then you start to talk about the other two who have really played a lot are Caleb Love and RJ Davis. Um, both point guards, Caleb Love was a projected one and done RJ Davis, one of the best scorers in New York high school basketball history. And they've both been good at times and they've both been God awful at times. They have games where they have 12, 15 points on six or seven shooting. And then they have games when they go two of 11 or two of 13 and have five turnovers. That has been the story of UNC season when those guys play well and they hold on to the ball and they're able to make 
two, three threes, it opens up everything else for UNC and the offense flows. When they're not, everything stagnates, people pack the paint, and UNC shooters chuck up bricks. So, um, And that would bring me to the one final freshman who Duke fans probably don't know anything about but need to because this guy is Kerwin Walton. He was inserted into UNC's starting lineup maybe six or seven games ago. And since then, UNC's offense has flowed infinitely better because he is the one true shooter on UNC's roster. If you're Duke, he is the one guy that you cannot allow to be left open on the perimeter because he, he will knock it down if it's open. Um, I talked to his high school coach in April when he committed to UNC, and, and the one thing he told me, the one thing and the only thing I needed to know about Kerwin was Roy Williams came to us and said he needed a shooter. That's what he got. And that has proven to be fruitful. So um, the freshman, it's sort of been a mixed bag like at Duke, but, but Kerwin certainly has been an interesting sort of revelation as a sub 100 prospect. Uh, you know, Hey, can I ask you something regarding the freshmen? There are so many freshmen for Carolina and for Duke. The, the majority of guys on the floor at any given moment in this game will be freshmen. Do you think that maybe they don't get the Duke UNC game, the rivalry, the way some of the other guys probably do, especially because with COVID-19, they haven't even been interacting with fellow students in the way they ordinarily would. I wonder if it's going to take something off the, the shine, so to speak, and the intensity of this game. I think it definitely will. And I think you're going to see, you've already started to see it. There's not as much publicity from ESPN this week. You know, usually these guys are used to the entire seven days leading up to this game. It is a matter of, oh my God, oh my God. Everywhere they go on campus, they're getting pestered. Beat Duke, beat UNC, beat Duke, beat UNC. There's none of that. There's no hype. There's no buzz. And it's not just because the teams are bad. The pandemic has obviously impacted that. Um, Cameron Indoor against UNC is as good an atmosphere as there is in all of college basketball. And that's not going to be there on Saturday. So yeah, certainly I think it's fair to say that these guys don't fully understand or appreciate the rivalry and the awe and the magnitude of it, but also at the same point, I can't really hold it against them that they don't, they haven't had the opportunity to. So uh, assess the game plans if you can, just really quick. What do you think Carolina is going to try to do? What is Duke going to try and do? And what are they each going to try and do to stop that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting game because I think that each team's strengths aligns with the other team's weaknesses. Um, UNC is going to pound the ball inside. UNC is going to try and get Armando Baycott, Garrison Brooks, and Dayron Sharp. They're trying to get them involved early and often. There should be a post-entry pass every single possession for UNC, um, which means that for Duke defensively, you have to figure out a way to combat that, and it can't be combating it in the post. Because if you leave Mark Williams on an island or Jalen Johnson on an island inside against those guys, they're going to get absolutely eaten alive. They're going to pick up foul trouble. And your whole game plan is ruined. So I think for Duke, it's going to be much more a strategy in the, mold, in, in the mold of what Clemson did and was so successful with against UNC. You front in the post, you heavy, heavy deny, and you make sure that those guys never even get the ball inside so you don't have to worry about fouling in some of those offensive rebounding situations. Um, and then on the flip side, if you're Duke, I think you really have to play this game through Jalen Johnson and Matthew Hurt. And I feel like we say that every single game for Duke, but UNC does not have anyone to match up with either of those two guys. UNC's best defender is Leaky Black. He's six foot eight, six foot nine. He's long, he's lanky but he's thin. He's not going to be able to stop Jalen Johnson from getting to the hole in transition. And, and no one on UNC's roster is going to be able to do that. And at the same time, if Garrison Brooks is matched up with Matthew Hurt 
on the perimeter. You think that Matthew Hurt has flow, slow foot speed out there? Um, get prepared to watch Garrison Brooks get cooked. So, <laughs> so I mean, I, I really think that both of these teams – and so for UNC, if you're trying to combat that, what you do is you're going to try and double those guys. You're going to try and make Matt, Lerf, uh, Matt Hurt's life miserable. You're going to try and not give him any looks on the perimeter. I would expect Leaky Black to, you know, almost – entirely consistently be on one of those two guys at any given time. I don't expect him to play defense really on anyone else on the court. Um, and he just has to be a pest in their side. He has to get them frustrated. And again, you're hoping that on the offensive end, you can help those guys pick up a couple of fouls. So they are less aggressive attacking the basket. But um, certainly I, I think that both teams, you know, what they do well is what the other team is poor at defending. So, um, you know, there's a chance that this turns out to be a better game than we'd expect. Okay, it's prediction time. Uh, give, give me how you think the game's going to go. Not just a final score, but sort of, you know, what, what do you think we're going to see? Yeah, I, I do think that – I think that both teams are going to have some level of success because of what we just said. You know, I don't think that Duke really has a front court answer for UNC's, you know, foursome, basically. I, I definitely foresee a scenario where Henry Coleman gets some minutes just so that he can be a foul body. So Mark Williams – He's going to pick up some fouls. Jamin Brakefield, he's going to pick up some fouls. But that's what, you know, to some extent, that's what those guys are there for in a game like this. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of what you'd expect from UNC, Leaky Black is, is going to have to play the best defensive game that he's played in, in months. He's going to have to sort of shut down one of those two dudes. And, and I'm not sure that he can. Um, UNC's guards are going to have to not turn the ball over. Duke's guards are going to have to not turn the ball over. So, um, I certainly can foresee a scenario where Jeremy Roach has a, a horrible pass that learns into a turnover. And then Caleb Love does the exact same thing on the other end. So um, ultimately though, if I have to pick who I think is going to win, I, I do think that it will be North Carolina because I think that the, the advantage UNC has in the front court is more pronounced than the advantage that Duke has on the perimeter, because if shots aren't falling for Duke, and again, there's no crowd in camera to sort of spur the blue devils on, I do think that there is a chance that if UNC is able to hit a couple, I, I don't know that Duke is going to be able to make more perimeter shots from Hurt, Jalen Johnson, some of these guards um, to sort of compensate for what they'd be giving up on the inside. Brendan, this was great. We really appreciate it, man. You gave us lots of time. You gave us lots of insight. Last thing, um, tell, just tell the audience out there how they interact with you, where they can find you, you know, on Twitter and all that other kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I try to be, you know, active and engaging on Twitter um, at Brendan R. Marks is my handle. Um, you know, I, I'm always open if people have story ideas, comments, questions, anything. We, we do a lot of reader mailbags at The Athletic. So we're always taking inquiries. Um, and then, yeah, you know, all my stories are available at The Athletic. If you don't have a subscription, we almost always have some sort of promotion going on. I, I really appreciate you guys subscribing and reading and, and following along. But um, you know, I'm biased, but I think that if you're a sports fan, we have the most comprehensive coverage of every sport in the world that you could possibly ask for. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and say it. The article that you and Dana O'Neill wrote this week about the Duke program is a must read for any Duke fan. Thanks so much for doing that, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, so we want to thank Brendan Marks again for taking the time to hang out with us this afternoon. It was a really interesting conversation that we had with him. Guys, I wanted to give it to you for a quick reaction. Donald, 
go first. What was kind of the most interesting thing that Brendan shared with us today uh, on the call? Everything, like literally everything. He, I mean, it was a great interview in the sense that he, he obviously has a wealth of knowledge about the ACC. And the reason why I wanted to ask the question about how he's done this during the pandemic is a lot of people in basketball know there's a very big difference for some people between what you see on TV and what you see in person and how a guy plays. There's a lot of people who are like, oh man, I watched this guy on TV. He's trash. And then there are people who are like, no, I have seen him live. This dude is the real deal. I, I want to see how that has affected him. And it's, and it seems like he's been able to pay more attention and, and be able to go back and watch games and be able to really hone in on certain details that you can't necessarily necessarily see when you're, when you're, doing your, your work from the arena. So I thought that was a very interesting perspective, but really just an incredible wealth of knowledge that he possesses about the ACC and all his players. Uh, and I think we've said this quite a bit. If you guys don't have the athletic, you should probably get a subscription. Uh, Brendan Marks is one of the best out there. Yeah, I, I definitely heard his comment about that and, and it resonated with me because you know I've spent now sort of two periods of my life going to basically every Duke game, right? When I was in school and then, and then recently uh, when I was in Durham last year, I'm going to every game and like seeing the guys up close and, and sort of picking up on all the little things that go on during the game. And then, and then getting to, you know, go into the press room and, and into the locker room and talk to the guys afterwards, you really get a sense of, of actually what's going on when you're watching it on TV and when you're just getting the interviews through zoom, it's a totally different dynamic. So yeah, that, that was interesting that, that he shared that with us, Jason, I wanted to get your perspective. What, what was the, the big takeaway that you had from this conversation? Look, I think every Duke fan noticed an important moment in the conversation when, when we asked him, okay, who from the ACC do you see making the tournament? And the discussion never included D U K E not once. He did not once. He I didn't picked even up on that begin to mention it. Uh, and I'm sure there are Duke fans out there who are like, what, you know, flipping out going crazy. I, I will tell you that when, when the interview was done, we were chatting a little bit with him. Not that it was off the record, but, you know, it's out of the context of our full interview. And, and Brendan explained, he was like, I don't think Duke's making the tournament. He, he said they, they've got no wins to hang their hat on. Um, you know, we, we beat Clemson at home. Clemson is another team on the bubble, certainly not a team that feels comfortable about their position in the NCAA tournament at the very moment. And, and our, so Duke's only good win right now is a home game against a bubble team. Well, th that's, that's not something that you go, well, that means we should make it. Duke has a lot, lot, lot of work left to do. I mean, Brendan said he feels like they have to almost run the table. I don't know if it's quite that steep of a hill to climb, but, but like, you know, this game this weekend against UNC, the game we have against Virginia, th those are kind of must wins because we don't have much else on our resume that, that says tournament team. I mean, at yeah. the, just, just hyping in on that, like when he mentioned that we looked at the schedule and it's like Virginia, it, you know, we talk about in previous years, those teams that are on the bubble. They go, yeah, yeah. We lost to, you know, Metro state, but we beat Wisconsin. We beat Michigan state. That's, and they literally try to make you focus in on that and say, don't, don't, don't look at the Metro state loss. That's, that's fine. Don't worry about that. We're kind of in that same position. We don't necessarily have a loss as bad as like a Metro state or something like some insert random team, but we don't have a team where we can go, Hey, look, we beat them. And that's why that Virginia game, we'll talk about it obviously later, but that Virginia game is super important because that is the one real game left on our schedule. Where we can go, look, look, we beat them. 
that's the position we're in right now. And I think our, you know, we have to really come out on Saturday against UNC playing with that urgency that we have because it is now urgent time. To put this into numbers perspective, currently, according to Ken Palm, Virginia is ranked number nine. The next best team remaining on Duke's schedule is Louisville, who's 36. And 36 is like, is like in the tournament, but, but very much like at the edge of the bubble. And, and then behind them is UNC at, at 43 and Syracuse at 46. Neither and, of whom is, is and guaranteed. These are, and, and these are home games for the most part. Almost all these games that we're talking about that, that, were, that are potential, you know, signature, whatever you want to call it, wins for Duke are home games. Now that's good for us to hopefully get the win, but it sort of deflates the value of the win a little bit as well. One other, so, note, one other note that we have real quick is that honestly, if we're looking at the rest of the schedule, we, we have to win quite a bit. We have to win almost all our games, but for some of these teams, we also have to hope that they win too, other than against us, because we want their rating to go up so that at the end of the season, our win against them looks a lot better. Yeah. If, the fact if that Louis- Duke doesn't get to play Florida state, like makes right. a, a huge difference here. Right. Yeah. Uh, we should be rooting hard for Louisville right now. If Louisville can run off a few wins in a row and then Duke beats them, it, it, you know, that, that helps us a tremendous amount. The thing that I found most interesting and, and what I was asking him about was the reaction that coach K has had to this season and, and the potential paradigm shift that he's seeing. So I, I don't know that there was like one particular takeaway from it, but I, I just really enjoyed that part of the conversation and, and getting his perspective as somebody who has clearly been watching ACC basketball a long time is dispassionate enough to, to not be a Carolina Homer about it, which is you know something that, that the three of us are, are, hard pressed to put away uh, and, and sort of looking at it with a, with a sober educated eye, I thought was really good. So once again, thank you very much to Brendan Marks for, of the athletic for joining us. Uh, we definitely recommend that, that you read his work and subscribe to the athletic, follow, follow everything he's doing. And, and, and before Sam wraps up, I, I want to point out, like you said, we're not done yet. We are going to have more. We're going to have like our own personal preview of the Carolina game tomorrow. And we're probably going to include some comments from coach K there. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, it's, it's Wednesday. We're going to put this episode out. We'll do another one tomorrow to, to formally preview the game. Cause we only got to talk about it in passing with Brendan Marks today. And then I assume we'll come to you after the, the UNC game at some point, we haven't exactly figured that out. And, and usually the timing of the post UNC game podcast is related to the outcome of the UNC game. So, so nope, no promises, no promises or commitments there. We'll get to it when we get to it, but that is all for episode 277 of the Duke basketball report podcast. Thanks again to Brendan Marks for joining us. Stay in touch with us. DBR podcast at gmail.com for Jason Evans and for Donald wine. I am Sam Klein. And this is the Duke band to take us home.